Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are, and you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Hello, and welcome to yet another value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. If you like this podcast, it would mean a lot if you could rate, follow, subscribe, review, wherever you're watching or listening to it. With me today, I'm happy to have on for, I think this is the third time, my friend, it says, is it Lena in the Zoom chat, but it is Evan Tindell. Oh, that's, that's, that's hilarious. Yeah, I'm, I'm never, I never uh, do podcasts on my iPad, but I'm traveling. So I have my, I guess, Linnea is my, uh, uh, my, my daughter. So yeah, that's fine. I like, well, look, I appreciate you coming on traveling. I, I've been really excited, really looking forward to this. I think you could probably tell by all the DMs and notes I was sending you in prep for this podcast. But before we talk about the company we're going to talk about, Let's quickly disclaimer, nothing on this podcast is investing advice. That's always true. But today we're going to be talking about a London listed stock with basically all of its assets in uh, in Africa, which is obviously a developing market all across Africa. But you know, both of those carry a little bit of extra risk versus a lot of the domestic stocks we generally talk about. So people should just please keep that in mind. Not investing advice, please do your own work. Uh, Evan, the company we want to talk about today is Airtel Africa. You had a great note on your blog about two or three months ago detailing the thesis for Airtel. Uh, I kind of came upon them separately and then realized you were in them and I wanted to have you on, but I'll just pause there and say, what is Airtel Africa? Oh, I'll include a link to your blog in the show notes, obviously, but what is Airtel Africa and why are they so interesting? Uh, Yeah, so it's a... African telecom company. Um, it's owned by uh, Barty Airtel, which is a uh, pretty lo- extremely large telecom company based in India. They own, I think, 55% of the shares outstanding. Um, and it's a very interesting asset because, I mean, just the telecom business itself is interesting because uh, the African uh, telecom industry has a number of things that we don't really have in the US. I mean, one, they have population growth. Two, there's this huge tailwind of, uh, you know, increasing penetration of, of data use, like, you know, still uh, a minority of, of um, subscribers have, uh, have data activated. And, and even just in terms of number of SIMs, like per population, SIM cards per population, it's like less than 50%, whereas, you know, in the West, it's 100% plus. Um, and so despite the fact that you have these kind of tailwinds to growing the business in a track record of growth, right? Like they've, you know, I think when they bought the asset, it was like 75 million subscribers, something like that. And now it's at 140 million subscribers. Um, and so despite that, those tailwinds, you have something that's trading for seven times free cash flow, something like that, seven or eight times earnings. Um, and so it seems like, it, to me, it appears to be a really well-managed business in the telecom space in Africa. Um, they're sort of, in a lot of markets, they're kind of like the, the challenger, like the kind of T-Mobile-esque uh, type operator where they're super efficient. Um, they have a little bit lower ARPU uh, and, and lower pricing than, than, uh, than MTN in most places. MTN it tends to be the dominant one, although they actually, Airtel's in 14 different markets. And I think most of them MTN is not in actually. 
Um, but, um, you know, it, but in a lot of markets, they're kind of like the, you know, the growing number two player. Um, and then similar to MTN, they have a very in, uh, interesting business kind of under the hood, which is this mobile payments business, which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get into where um, I think on a run rate basis, they have uh, over a hundred billion dollars transferred on hundred billion US dollars. Um, obviously it's, it's transferred in local currency, but a uh, hundred billion US uh, transferred across their their network and and they generate about 700 million of revenue and over 300 million of EBITDA on that um, on that on that business, and so you know five billion market cap with a couple billion of uh, of of net debt um, for me that just seems insanely cheap. Uh, you know even if we looked only at the mobile even if we looked only at the mobile payments business, I mean it's gone from uh, you know 100 million in revenue. To 700 million US. It's all. It's all. One of the nice things about their accounting is it's all done in US dollars. Um, so it's gone from 100 million in revenue to 700 million. In some of their uh, in in some of their markets, like 60 percent of their subscribers actually use the mobile payments business, and in other ones, it's like 15 to 20 percent. So I think there's a long, uh, you know, there's a there's a pretty long runway for growth. And so I just think, I mean, seven times earnings uh, is kind of insane for this for this business. I mean, yes, it is Africa. You do have to worry about currency. Um, you have a controlling shareholder, so there's all kinds of obviously hair on it. Um, but as far as if you, I think if you read the financials, if you just read the financials and you just looked at the uh, the mobile payments business, you would think that it should trade at 20 times earnings. My is my guess. Like, yeah. Look, I, I will be honest. I love this idea, but as you said, there is a lot of hair on it and a lot of, of worries. Especially, there are a lot of worries that that come with. I guess let's start with. Let's start with the sexy stuff first, actually, right? So you mentioned the mobile money right. business, which has grown quickly. Uh, it's doing about 350 million in EBITDA over, and again, that's US over the past 12 months, growing rapidly. I, I think the real sexy part of this, <laughs> this one of the sexy parts of the story is, hey, they might monetize and crystallize value of the mobile money business. So do you want to talk through that? Um, yeah, so they uh, they put out a plan or they, they, they put out a goal to... IPO the the mobile money business by I think that's at the end of 2024. Um, was it 2024 or 2025? I actually don't remember. I think it was, I think so it was 2024. From memory, they they have sold a stake in the mobile business to TPG and a few people. Right, yeah. They have to IPO that. They have to IPO by the end of 25. I think from memory, they're okay. one of the things I found in the AR is the management team gets like 100% of their salary and a bonus if they IPO Airtel money by the end of their fiscal 2024. I think fiscal 2024 it might be calendar, but yeah, so they're really incentivized to get this uh, done. Yeah, in so they future. sold. Yeah, they they sold. I think a 25 percent stake to TPG. I think Mastercard and a, and a couple other uh, Qatar Holding and Camara Investments. Yeah. Who I don't know who Camara is, but yep. And so I think I think the the valuation was 2.5 or 2.6 billion on that um, on that transaction, which. Honestly, now that it's doing 350 million, and I mean that was uh, you know a couple that was a year or two ago. So, but still, it's, it feels that actually feels pretty like they got a pretty good, great deal. Those investors on, on that on that purchase. I mean, now it's doing 350 million in EBITDA. I mean, if it was if this thing, if you looked at the financials and this thing and the mobile money business was trading in the U.S., it for sure would trade at you know five, six, seven. I mean, what? if they traded at seven billion, it would be 20 times EBITDA. I mean, it's not. It's it's. Let me give one pushback there. So I, I actually sure. don't disagree with you, right? You see this thing and it's literally like hockey stick up and to the right, growing, great demographics, all this for the mobile payments, right? But one thing that did jump out to me is, hey, if I if I just told you, hey, Evan, 
I know of a company that got a $2 billion. They're a fintech player. They got a $2 billion valuation in March, 2021. What do you think that company is worth today? You and I would say, oh, right. well, you know, without looking at the financials, be like 600 million, 400 million. Did it file for right. bankruptcy? Was it a SPAC? You know, so right. I, I do look at that 2.5, 2.6 billion. And I say, oh, that is like seven times current EBITDA, less on a run rate given how much they're growing. But then I'll say, oh, well, it's Africa. And March 2021 was a pretty good time for fintech. Like, how should I look at that internal valuation, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think it would, I think that would be a more, um, probably more relevant comparison if it was like a public market valuation in 2021. Um, I think my guess is that TPG thought they got a steal. Um, and, you know, obviously when you have MasterCard coming in as well, um, Airtel probably thought they were, um, I'm guessing they thought they were giving them a, a good price, but it's, it's a minority of the business and, you know, they can, they can partner with MasterCard, MasterCard to grow the business, uh, across Africa. Um, and so they, they thought they were getting, a you know, some, some, some add-ons on top of the valuation I would, I would think. Um, but yeah. And I mean, I think most, most of the things we would be comping it to, like I'm just thinking of a random company that we were short uh, a firm, <laughs> like like the other like every other fintech had negative EBITDA in 2021, right? Yep. I mean, like the vast majority of these businesses were, um, you know, clawing and scratching to uh, acquire customers that they could then lend money to at like seven percent or whatever, depending on the or not seven percent, but you know, it's like they basically it was like a, a a customer acquisition game of of sub of like not really prime customers and slapping a, a sales multiple on top of it. And Hope Square bought you for a huge premium before all the music stopped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then hope someone just ignores the underlying economics of the business and just pays a, a, a even bigger sales multiple. Whereas here, I mean, you had someone paying 10, 10 times EBITDA and you know the EBITDA has, is up by 50% since then. So um, yeah, although, yeah. I, I, so I think it doesn't quite, I don't, I don't think it's quite a good comparison there. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. So I, I guess, I, I think we've covered a lot. So one of the really sexy things that it would attract investors to it, the, the low valuation, all this, but you've got this really fast growing mobile money business, which Airtel owns 74% of after they, they sold the stakes that Again, that I, I kind of mentioned earlier, the management team, they said they're IPOing. The deal with TPG says they'll IPO it in the next two or three years. The management team's very incentivized to IPO it because they get a really nice bonus if they IPO it. So it, you could have this real crystallization of a sexy growth story value unlock in the next, could be at the end of this year, could be next summer, could be by the end of next year, but it seems like it's almost certainly coming. Yeah, and I mean, they, they've definitely... Um 
you know, this management team, it, it is, it is controlled by a foreign, you know, by a, by a, uh, an Indian company. So you have, and you, and you don't have any control. They own 55%. But I mean, in terms of, um, you know, paying dividends and, and even this whole plan of, of, of spinning off the mobile money business, I mean, it's, and, and, and selling a minority stake. I mean, it's kind of designed to, it appears very well crafted to sort of, uh, you know, crystallize the value and kind of reveal the value of the, of the business. Um, and they've, uh, to, to my knowledge, they've given no indication that they're not like going full, fully forward with the plan. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it seems like a year, year and a half and you're going to have, um, you should have an event there, which, you know, kind of reveals how undervalued the, the, the stock is right now. I want to go to some of the risks because the risks are really important to think about here. But I guess since we've yeah. just been talking about mobile money, maybe we should just quickly highlight the, the sum of the parts here, right? And the, the stock is trading for a little above, is it 100 pence or 100 pounds? I can never remember what it is in London, but it's, it's, well, it's funny. It's, it's pence. Um, it's pence. I, I tried to put the idea in some zero and I, and I, I didn't realize that they were, <laughs> they were like going to have it be in pounds on some zero. So I put, I put my target as 300, as 300. And so, in that, and so I had a friend be like, uh, or my business partner was like, I don't think a 30,000% return target is really that reasonable. I love the idea, but. <laughs> Shoot for the stars, bud. Shoot for the stars. Yeah. So, um, you, so you buy it in pence. Yeah. So trades about a hundred pence. Why don't we just quickly talk about how you look at the sum of the parts here? Yeah. So I will say this, first of all, I, I, I and some of the parts get a lot of, a lot of hate. I'm not big on some of the parts. Um, I think it, I think it's really important that you always need to pencil out a uh, an actual like it needs to translate to IRR right and in this case I really think it does because you know you can value some of the parts but you know the mobile money EBITDA is going to translate to uh, free cash flow you know pretty quickly um, so that's just my some of the parts caveat but uh, I mean you know let's say um, so 350 million of EBITDA in the mobile money business. I mean, it depends what you think it's worth. If you think it's worth, uh, if you think that's worth, you know, $5 billion, that's basically the, you know, the market cap of the, that's the market cap of the, the firm right there. And then you have another, you know, 2 billion, you know, around 2 billion of EBITDA in the, in the like core telecom business um, against, uh, you know, against 1 point something billion of, of debt. And, you know, we could debate how you want to look at, at the leases and whatnot. There's, I think, I think 1.9 billion of, of, of lease liabilities, which I don't like to include in enterprise value, but, you know, accounting rules tell me differently. Um, and so, uh, you know, you have 2 billion of, of telecom EBITDA that I think should trade for, I mean, if I was, I mean, it's 50, you know, it's like they do like a 50% margin versus Verizon at 35%. So it's, it's a pretty good business. I think it's trade for at least five times. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's 10 billion. So 10 billion plus 10 billion plus 5 billion is 15 billion less 2 billion of debt is 13 is uh 13 billion and so you know on uh 3.8 billion shares outstanding it should be um you know trading for over over 300 pence i think i mean easily the the only two differences i have uh is i take out the and you can tell me and we can live workshop this i take out the 26% that tpg owns so of the mobile money business oh yes so. yes yes that, that would yes, not yes, cost yes. a billion off. But aside from that, I, I was just using their net debt number when I built a simple thing. But when I when I do both those adjustments, I still get like 250 pence per share. So instead of 3x upside, it's 2.5x or whatever, but it, it's still quite hefty. Let me let me ask some questions on this. So you mentioned the 
I guess just sticking on to some of the parts, and there are some important other questions we have, but you mentioned five times EBITDA for the mobile business. And one thing that jumped out to me, and I was talking about this with a friend yesterday is, hey, now Airtel's not killing their customers with lead as Verizon and AT&T and stuff might be doing. I don't know. But you know, Verizon trades for about six times EBITDA, right? And you could make an argument, hey, Airtel's not killing their customers with lead. Airtel's a real growth story. You know, the, their customer base is young. A lot of it is still on 3G. They've got a clear growth story to 4G, selling more services. Plenty of room for ARPUs to grow as uh, ARPUs to grow as the population gets a little wealthier. There's not a lot of substitution because these are very poor countries. They they couldn't afford satellite service. They can't afford it. Like there's a great story built in. But I could also say, hey, Verizon is a developed market country with no geopolitical risk, macro risk, and it trades for six times EBITDA. Like generally, developing market countries trade for lower multiples than developed market countries. So like when I look at that, I don't know where. I don't know what the right multiple is, right? But could you talk me into, hey, maybe it should trade for four times, giving these risks if all the developed, I, I mean, every developed market telecom trades for like 6X. So I, I just don't know. Yeah, you 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 can. I mean, it's it's there's there's a bunch of puts and takes, right? So um, on the plus side, I mean, you mentioned this, on the plus side, they have demographic growth. They have penetration within the population growth. They have the essential nature. I mean, this is people's only access to the internet, right? Like, yep. so from a, there's no substitution, like you said. Um, I think uh, EBITDA translates more closely to free cash flow than for Verizon. Um, uh, I, the EBITDA margins are higher. I think they have a better track record of growing market share within their markets relative to their peers. So in that way, maybe the better comparison is something like T-Mobile, which trades at a higher, a higher multiple. Um, so I think Everything, almost everything except currency and Africa, which obviously are tied at the hip, um, would say that it should trade at a higher valuation. Uh, like, you know, I think if you if you only looked at the numbers, you would be like, this is a way better business than Verizon. Yeah. Like you would be like, there's no, this is this is so much better than Verizon. This is as and 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 you know, and the numbers are translated into US dollars. So we can get there's some there's some tricks with, with that, given some of the um, currency moves we've seen recently, but um, I think X everything else besides the fact that it's developing should, should mean it's traded a higher multiple. And then you know, so maybe maybe the fact that it is Africa and you do have to worry about currency means that it should trade at you know the same multiple. I think I'm hard pressed to think it should trade at much lower. Um, although you know, arguably, like the math that we just went through would say that um, you know the the market price says it's trading at like one times EBITDA or, yeah. or half a times, half a turn of EBITDA if you net out the mobile money business. So certainly that seems too low. Um, and, you know, so I think anywhere between anywhere between three and six times EBITDA, you'll end up making a lot of money and it could be, it could be higher. It's also one of those things where it's like, you know, I think with coal companies, like, okay, if a developed market coal company is trading for two times EBITDA and you're like, I want a discount on a developing market country's coal. It's like, I, I understand where you're coming from, but two times EBITDA is like two and a half times cash flow. You can't go much cheaper than that because eventually it's just like, hey, I want to trade this at four days worth of free cash flow or something. You know, like you, you just can't well, get yeah, much and, 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 I, and I think the 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 cheaper the absolute valuation of the business, the more the valuation implies that like there are problems with the or there are issues with the business in terms of like for Verizon, capital intensity, competition, substitution. Uh, that 
will, will dominate more than like the geographic location of like, I think if the, all the competitors were trading at 20 times EBITDA, yep. right. That, then I think you would have more of an argument of why it should trade for, for much cheaper. Um, but even here, like those things, those things that I read off, like most of those things are not, are actually better in Africa. So, um, so I think you're, yeah, you're hard pressed to say it, say it should trade at two times EBITDA in my opinion. Let's quickly talk currency because you've got a stock that trades right. denominated in pence. Uh, they uh, they report are the are all of their financials in USD, but obviously the local markets are you know have different currencies. So let's talk about currency risk and how you think about that here. Yeah, so it is it is substantial. Um, the, the the biggest, I mean, just as like a broad view, I mean, most of the currencies that they've that they operate in, um, I don't know, I forget how many there are in total, but they operate in 14 different countries. And a lot of those, some of those are in like currency blocks um, and uh, one or two of which are actually pegged to the Euro, which is nice. Um, and then a couple of them, but then most of them are, are free floating or semi free floating. Um, and they've all depreciated against the, against the dollar at sort of a mid to high single digit rate, except for one or two, which have been worse than that, um, you know, over the past you know, depends on how far you go back, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, like it's been pretty consistent kind of high single digit rates. Now, I think um, there's a couple factors that that help out with with that. I mean, one, the, the one, one is um, the financials are in US dollars. So any currency effects are obviously, for the most part, well incorporated uh, in the financial statements, and they've still been able to grow on a US dollar on a US dollar basis, despite that. Um, two, I mean, from a purchasing power parity standpoint, I mean, you would expect them to be able to, I mean, the reason why, the reason why, uh, or I made a huge component of currency moves is you have local currency inflation, which means yep. prices go up in local currency and then, uh, you know, and then, but you know, roughly in dollars, purchasing power parity would, would, would dictate that they should be roughly the same. Um, so you have that factor where they should be able to grow pricing in local currency if there's that much inflation. And finally, I mean, you have this major tailwind of people using more data, using more minutes. And again, it's priced by minute and price per, per gigabyte. Um, so that is also a tailwind. Although um, I actually make the argument that like it's, it's very important that they have that because Purchasing power parity is nice, but in a lot of these countries, the prices for telecom services are actually regulated. So it's a more sticky. I mean, they have gotten through some price increases in places, but it's more, it's stickier than, you know, it's stickier than coal or oil. It's stickier than like some random commodity that's not uh, regulated by the, by the government. I, I really like that point in your write-up that, hey, you know, because data is inherently deflationary as you get more services and you go from 3G to 4G, like if you've got a lot of these are, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, a lot of these are regulated on price, right? The the local government says, hey, you can't charge more than a dollar per gig. It's like, great, our prices are actually deflating. So it's a nice hedge against regulation. It's a nice hedge against inflation, as you're saying. It's just a, a nice hedge in general. Not that it's right. perfect, but it's nice. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at um, any developed market, what you've seen is prices deflate massively uh, per, per gigabyte. So if they're even allowed to just hold it flat, then that's basically like inflationary pricing that they're able to take advantage of. Let me go to related to the currency risk, right? So the big headline risk here is, hey, this is Africa. A lot of these are developed markets. A lot of these are uh, poorer. You know, the governments are less stable. 
And some of that actually is a benefit. Like I think one person asked, hey, what about Starlink? And the answer to Starlink is, hey, a Starlink receiver costs $1,000 to send and these people are paying $2 per month for uh, their mobile service. It, you know, it, it, if Starlink wanted to subsidize them, they could subsidize them for a cool 20 years worth of uh, mobile revenue or something. So it's nice in that, but just going to the political risk, right? I was talking to a friend and he said, hey, if you're going to invest in these, I understand you're looking at it and you're saying, look at the growth here. I was looking at Helos Towers, which is another, said, hey, this could be American Towers AMT 20, 25 years ago, which went on to be like a hundred bagger. This could be huge. And he said, look, right. I understand you're putting your business analyst hat on, but what you need to do is you need to go put on your historian and geopolitical hat on and say, hey, why is the government not going to seize all of these from me? Why is this economy not going to collapse into civil war and all this sort of stuff? So how would you respond to that type of risk? Yeah, I think I think um, there. Uh, this was something that we thought about a lot, um, and I think there's a number of reasons why I think it's unlikely that um, a government would 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 seize the assets. And the the first is, the first is that these are super super critical infrastructure for just the operating of the entire economy. And I mean, the, I don't think the government really wants to risk some type of the government doesn't most governments don't want to risk the telecom system malfunctioning after they took it over i mean of course you could just i mean you could concoct all sorts of scenarios where the government just like you know steals it but keeps the people operating it and then sells it to the highest bidder or something um but i think even that risks uh you know it it, it risks disruption to service that i don't think politically is is is, is very tenable especially considering how vital these systems are to the development of the African economy. Um, two, they already the, the government already has huge hooks into these things uh, in terms of the, like ex economic exposure to the development of these assets, and those are a is just profits taxation. I mean, they they you know part of the valuation is that these companies pay roughly forty percent um, forty percent income tax rates. Uh, across across the business, I mean yeah, that's what Airtel pay, ends up paying. Um, you you also have uh, Spectrum payments that the com that companies have made. I think last year they paid you know three hundred million dollars for uh, for Spectrum in uh, in Nigeria and one or two other countries, and so governments are able to to monetize it that way. Um, I think you can uh, you can theorize that at some point down the road. Um, the the you know maybe the, the spectrum rules will become so punitive that um you know that that it'll take increasing amounts of of, of um of their profit to kind of uh to kind of deal with that but I, I don't know it just doesn't it doesn't seem it doesn't seem likely to me for them to want to risk disrupting the functioning of these assets given how vital they are and uh, also in, in in a few cases you actually have um some some subsidiaries trading on local uh, local exchanges. I don't know if you saw that, but I think it's um, maybe like Malawi and Tanzania. They have minority stakes that trade on local exchanges, um, and so the government. I don't fully know the reason. I think the, the government basically put in rules with respect to local ownership uh, in an effort to kind of spread the wealth around in terms of you know making sure local investors profit from the you know the growth of these businesses, and so I think in those cases that will also kind of um, you know, that will tie the hands of the government a little bit, you know, they're already, they're, they're, their investors are already participating. And so they would kind of, they would be hurting their own citizens if they, um, you know, if they overly burden these businesses with, uh, with, with taxes. Um, one, 
one yeah. friend who, when I told him you were coming on for Airtel and we were talking about it, he said, Hey, I told him I was worried about nationalization said, go look at the history of nationalization. It's very much what you're saying, but go look like the history of nationalizations of telecom companies are a disaster. And when your telecom nationalization is a disaster, it's very obvious to your residents. And that's the type of thing that, you know, get people out on the street, especially now, if I can't watch my Netflix on streaming, like that is the type of thing. Well, there's two hours of my free time gone. I guess I can go ride in the street. Like it's something that is very obvious. And the hit, if you look recently, people, even the most socialist countries now generally don't nationalize the telecom company for exactly all the reasons you're laying out. Yeah. And I mean, like if, if, if I can only imagine like in, uh, in, in Kenya, um, Safaricom's M-Pesa network is like, does more than the GDP of, of Kenya in like peer-to-peer transactions, similar to Airtel money. And I mean, if that went down for a week in, in Kenya, I mean, the entire economy would basically, or like huge swaths of the economy would just ce- cease to function basically. And I, I doubt that that's, you know, something that even the most um, hardened dictator would, would want would want to risk. I mean, they actually had a, um, I think it was, I think it was, I forget which country, maybe it was Uganda or, or one of the countries put a, um, a mobile a tax on mobile, like a one or 2% tax on mobile money transfers uh, a, a couple of years ago. And then there was such an uproar that they actually ended up, uh, they ended up removing it. Um, and I think it just goes to show i forget i have sort of remembered which country that was but it just goes to show that like you know if you if you mess with people's don't don't mess with people's phones <laughs> you know I, I think that's probably a pretty good rule what about so you mentioned the tax and the mobile payments but i i guess there's tax on mobile payments is one thing like that's shutting the whole economy down we can talk about seizure of that asset in a second but what about tax on the networks right like i i worry about not necessarily men and with guns going and seizing all the towers and seizing the telecom. But I do worry like almost the the frog that boils slowly where, hey, nice telecom company you got there. You know, it's really important. We need to fund the deficit. Last year, it was 10% taxes on telecom. This year is 12. Next year is 14. And then suddenly you and I are talking, you know, eight years from now, it's like, oh, well, Airtel pays 40% of revenues and taxes in all these countries because it's not that they're seizing them. They're just taxing all the economic profitability out of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose something like that is is I think possible. Um, I mean, I feel like that would also involve pretty large political risks, just because. I mean, you need you need these companies to invest in the future, right? Like they're they're th- these companies are like some of the um, the most important uh, technology businesses in in Africa in terms of uh, you know just like bringing Africa into the twenty. 20- first century 22nd century it's one of the centuries, some century <laughs> into the into the into the current century in terms of um you know in terms of digitizing the economy you need them to have capital to um you know to 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 to, le- to build the towers to lease the towers to invest to invest in r&d and build the next generation of infrastructure i mean you have airtel um is also working on uh i mean airtel has 40 uh, sorry sorry 70 70 000 kilometers of um uh, of, of fiber that they've, uh, that they've built, I think. Um, and so, uh, no, maybe seven, no, seven, maybe it's 7,000. I think it was 75 for, for memory, but yeah, something. Okay. It's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fiber. Um, and so, you know, I, I think these, I think they want, I I think they're, I, I think they want these businesses to be able to invest. And so the only way to do that is to, you know, is to let them make profits. You know, I'm of two minds there because I I do agree with you just that 
you think domestically, right? The most powerful lobbies tend to be the telecom lobbies, uh, among the most powerful, because they employ so many people and they invest so much money. You know, you go to the representatives like, hey, who's there? We're a top three employer in your district. And we also make the largest capital investments consistently in your district. Like it, the lobbying arms tend to be very, very powerful when you get that. It's going to be the same here, right? These might be one of the five largest employers in every country. They make hundreds of millions of dollars in investments. They need to buy Spectrum. But at the same time, there, there is a little bit of a difference of, hey, we nationalized the telecom company and all the phone service shut down versus, hey, we're taxing the bejesus out of them. So they kind of stop stop laying fiber and we're never going to get upgrade from 3G to 4G. Like There is a difference, but I, I do think you're right where if you employ 3% of the country's workforce and you've got that powerful, it's going to be very difficult to tax you into oblivion. I don't know if you were saying that. I also think, um, I mean, you know, these businesses have been operating in, um, in Africa for, I don't know what, like 15, 20 years now. And we haven't really seen, there's many countries in Africa. I mean, we haven't really seen, any of the countries, I mean, multiply 20 years by uh, whatever, 50 countries in Africa or whatever. And I mean, you know, we, I don't think we've seen any large scale taxation on the, on the, on the scale that you're, you're talking about, um, where it would just crush the business. I mean, it's, it's been much more around, around the edges and, and reasonable, it seems. I mean, obviously that can change at any time, but I, I think the history would, would indicate that that's, um, seems pretty unlikely. What about nationalization of the the mobile payments business, right? Because that is something that's much easier to nationalize. And we have seen that. I, I think we've seen that or seen attempts at that elsewhere where, hey, it's very easy. The code's in the cloud. You just say, it was your code. Now it's our code. Not taxation there because that shuts the thing down, but just nationalization or lots of political influence. Hey, why don't you stop allowing payments to our political opponents or to businesses we don't like? Like, I think we've seen that in some kind of Russian vassal states and that type of thing. Yeah, it, it it feels like a risk. Um, I think most of the most of the comments would 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 still apply. I mean, I mean, yeah, you don't. It's not like it's not going to involve like operating towers, but it's still. I mean, it's it's uh, you know the code is is in the cloud, but there's data centers and there's customer data and there's. I mean, it's just. I don't know. I I I, I think it's much. It seems to me much more likely. Like if, you, if I'm if I'm putting a dictator my dictator hat on, it just seems much more likely that I'm going to want to that I'm going to want to tax it. Um, but yeah, a different business risk. You mentioned that Airtel tends to be kind of the T-Mobile in their markets, right? Which sound they're they're the second player. They tend to be kind of the disrupt, maybe not the disruptor is not the right term because T-Mobile was so unique, but they tend not to be the largest player. And until T-Mobile came along, like it tended to be, Hey, being the largest player is the best, right? You amortize your spectrum costs over more customers. You amortize your fixed costs over more customers. Like it, in a lot of businesses, it's the best to be the largest, especially in a heavily fixed cost business. Does the fact that they tend to be the second place player, again, they're very cheap. So a lot of it is built into the multiple, but could that limit your returns over time or could that hurt them in other ways? Yeah. I mean, I know, I know um, uh, a very smart person that I was talking to who has a larger position in MTN. Um, he actually does own Airtel as well, but he was saying that he, he likes MTN more because he thinks that the, especially the mobile money business is likely to be sort of a winner take most, uh, yeah. type thing where the largest player, um, you know, the, the, the largest player just has the, has the best business. Um, I don't think that 
the data bears that out so far in the mobile money business in Africa. I mean, um, they've been growing their uh, mobile money business and subscriber base faster than MTN over the past five years. Um, they're, they're, mo they're, they're number two in a lot of places, but they've, they've also gained market share and closed the gap in some others. Um, and I, like, I think, I think in Uganda now they're, they're, they're now like about to cross, uh, and become the, the largest player. And if there's a you know, couple other countries like that, where they're kind of encroaching. Um, and to me that indicates that, and this is where I think there's a similarity with T-Mobile. Um, they just are a little bit better operationally and with customer acquisition, branding cost wise, like design of the network, uh, just, you know, overall. And, and actually that was kind of, um, in India, Airtel was known to um, basically they outsourced everything from the very beginning in a in a very uh, unique and contrarian way. Like you know, thirty years ago, or whatever, when they were starting, like everyone said, "Oh, you have to own the technology," and blah blah blah. And they just said, "Listen, we're bringing in Ericsson, we're bringing in Nokia, we're going to like have someone else do this. We're going to focus on what we know best, which is marketing, acquisition costs, um, uh, and you know, pricing and designing. Uh, you know, just." everything except the, the core technology. And what they ended up with was um, a, a lower priced uh, service and eventually, you know, 300, whatever million, uh, 350 million or whatever it is, sub subscribers in, uh, in India. And so I think there's, um, you know, there is plenty of evidence that they're extremely shrewd operators and that they've been able to grow market share despite being the number two, the number two player. Um, and so I don't particularly worry that that's going to cause them any, any long-term harm. Um, and, and, and if anything, it just shows their, 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 their shrewdness that they've been able to overcome that to date. So that actually, that transitions nicely. So by the way, the investor of yours, who mentioned NTN, I ha have a feeling I had lunch with him yesterday and he helped me prep a lot of these questions, but the, let me just quickly ask <laughs> on MTM, why Airtel over MTN, right? MTN's larger. They've got the mobile payments business. I think they might trade a little bit cheaper than Airtel, though they're, they're both trading quite cheaply, obviously. But why did you use Airtel? Uh, so a couple of reasons. One is I, I if you just look if you look back at the track record over over you know the past five years, I, I think the numbers the numbers tell me that Airtel has just executed better in terms of subscriber growth, profitability, um, and even growth of the of the mobile money business. So that's like. That's the main thing. Um, the valuation is interesting because I, I actually didn't. Um, uh, I think our, our, our common friend, one of the things he pointed out to me was that MTN has uh, a bunch of sort of hidden assets that um, that don't necessarily aren't obvious in terms of the enterprise value, in terms of like stakes in other businesses and um, you know non telecom businesses that are interesting. Uh, and so I thought Airtel looked cheaper. Um, just on the pure uh, sort of EB to EBIT and like price to free cash flow uh, mm -hmm. metrics that I was looking at. Um, so it may be, it may be that my second point, which was that it's cheaper valuation, may actually not be true. Um, but I just think, I, I think, I think if you look at the, I think if you look at the results over the past, you know, uh, you know, five years or so, they've just executed better. Um, and it just seemed like a, uh, you know, therefore a cleaner story, like to be able to grow. Um, U.S. dollar EBITDA and revenue in the way that they have, despite all the currency moves, is, is just really impressive to me. That's um, an interesting answer. Just, I don't disagree, or I, I haven't dove into NTN, so I can't like disagree or agree with anything strongly. Though I, I think everything you laid out makes sense. I, I am surprised you did not mention the IPO of 
mobile money? Because I know you and I are both. Oh, you, yes, you know, yes. We yes. do like a catalyst. I, I And you can tell me if you were just overlooking it, but MTN does not have a plan to like crystallize value and Airtel does. I thought that might have been a real differentiating factor. No, that's, that, that's actually a, a good point. Something that I had thought of in the past, but just completely forgot in the last two minutes when I was talking <laughs> talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I think... They, they've shown with their willingness to sell the minority stake and then plan plan for the IPO. They, they've sort of shown, um, and I, I think it's actually almost more important than the catalyst of that specific catalyst is just that they're, they're, they're kind of showing themselves to, to kind of care about shareholder value and kind of revealing, not just letting the share price languish at this super cheap some of the parts multiple but like actively doing something to sort of release the value uh in terms of in terms of the ipo um that just sort of demonstrates that they're going to be good stewards of capital i think which is important let's talk care about shareholder value so there's obviously a shareholder who owns 55 percent here uh you know anytime i i just threw out hey we've got an african we've got a company that operates completely in Africa, all this sort of stuff that raises hype. And they say, oh yeah. And by the way, they're a controlled company. You say, oh my God, like I can't, I feel like I can get my face ripped off. So do you want to talk about the controlling shareholder a little bit? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so the controlling shareholder is, is, is Barty Airtel. Um, they were, uh, they're, they're an Indian telecom company. Like I said, 500 million subscribers. Um, and they're just, uh, I, what what I generally know about their their business is they're thought to be very um, efficient operators in 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 India uh, and you know they they bought this asset in I think um, there was a, a couple of transactions um, the Kuwaiti telecom company bought it in 2010 I believe from uh, a, a Sudanese company I think is what what happens um, and then sometime between then and 2017. Uh, uh, Barty Airtel. I don't know if you remember the exact date of when they uh, of, of when they of when they purchased it. Um, so yeah, five or six years later, they uh, they bought it. Um, and yeah, I think I, I've you know been pretty impressed with how they've how they've run their business so far. They give me no indication. I mean, anytime you have a controlling shareholder, you're kind of like reading the tea leaves uh, in terms of what they intend to do um, or whether they intend to do anything shady or whether you like you said you're going to get your face ripped off somehow. Um, and just in the way they talk, bringing in the Western investors as minority share- shareholders, promising the IPO, um, they pay they pay roughly two hundred million dollars of dividends every year. They don't try to like get the money out in some kind of shady, uh, you know, related party, yeah, related party transaction. They're just paying the dividends out to all the shareholders. Um, so in that sense, it 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 just makes me a lot more comfortable. Um, and the fact that they're publicly traded in India. Um, I think also is uh, you know probably better than it being a, a, a private company that doesn't have to answer to anyone is is also probably nice. And I, I haven't done a ton of work on them, but I did look at the stock chart like adjusted for U.S. dollar and stuff of the control shareholder, and it it is a stock chart that I would not mind. I would not mind owning that stock chart. <laughs> they IPO the mobile money business, right? It, it could be. It depends on the valuation and how much they IPO and everything, but it could easily be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars coming into the the company. Do you have an idea for what they would do with that money? And would they eventually look to spin out the mobile money business? Kind of what the use of proceeds be there? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. Um, I mean, the uh, the 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 first uh, the, the I mean, the simplest thing would just be to to pay out a dividend. Um, you know, that would obviously go back into the coffers of. Uh, you know, both shareholders such as myself and, you know, the parent company in, in India, that would be very simple. Um, they've been paying down debt over the years. Um, 
and and also trying to move debt from the uh, the holding company down into the um, the operating companies, which helps them uh, you know that helps them hedge their some of their currency risk if it's like local currency debt. Um, it also it also you know makes the risk of any one country kind of going rogue uh, you know less for the you know the holding company itself. If you have the debt um, you know down closer to any to the operating companies, um, and so potentially they could just pay off all the holding company debt. I mean that would be nice. Uh, you know that would save them a significant amount of of, of, of interest expense. Um, you know right now it's like a couple hundred million dollars I think of of, of interest expense that they that they pay. Um, and so uh, yeah, I think there's a number of interesting things. I mean I would love for them to to buy back the stock, although I don't know if it's 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 definitely not liquid enough for them to put <laughs> uh, you know. A billion dollars. Will your control shareholders in fifty five percent? I wonder if they start would start taking down. Like, do you know if uh, Barty is going to try to reduce their stake over time, or what do you think happens there? That that I have not heard them uh, say anything about. I mean, you know, if if I was them, I would want the price to be much higher before I started doing that because um, you know that's how I feel about all my stocks. I want them to be a lot higher. Before I <laughs> right, them. right. And if you owned if you owned two billion of one of them, it probably would. Uh, it would probably would put it. It's also in your control, though, right? Because if you own two billion, yeah. you can start you can start pulling level levers to crystallize as much value as possible as you need to get the stock higher. I unfortunately cannot do that with any of my companies currently. <laughs> Which some stuff that we've kind of touched on a little bit, but that I want to make sure we go we hit before hit fully. Number one, we said Africa. I, I mean, right now, you know, inflation is roaring, and for U.S. consumers, it, it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. But you know, you hear all the time, "Hey, the people who get hit hardest by the Ukraine war is the people in Africa." Right? I think Airtel said in one of their things, in a lot of our countries, forty percent of our consumers' income goes to food, and you know, a, a decent bit on top of that is going to go to energy. When food prices go up 10 or 15% because Ukraine is not exporting wheat or gas and oil prices go up, like that, that can cause a serious, really rapid recession, depression, that sort of stuff. That would probably be in the numbers already a little bit, but that look doesn't look great. Like I guess I'm asking consumers incredibly economically fragile, sensitive inflation. Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, uh obviously historically we've seen um you know, emerging market economies like the last 20, 30 years generally do worse anytime there's some sort of negative, do worse than developed markets anytime there's some sort of negative thing that occurs uh, in the world, whether it's inflation or financial crisis or, or what have you. Um, although, you know, a lot of the African economies are still, um, are still heavily based on, uh, on commodities. So, you know, to the extent that inflation comes with higher commodity prices, um, it, it, it could be not as bad as maybe you would expect just in terms of, uh, you know, the overall effect on GDP and that, you know, ho hopefully trickling down to the, to the common person. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly I, I, I worry about, um, you know, the, the, the impact of, of currency on the business and, you know, the potential for any one currency or group of currencies to do very poorly. I mean, we just saw in Nigeria, um, the exchange rate get, Basically, it was a essentially a fixed exchange rate at you know four hundred something uh, naira to the dollar for a long time, and the black market rate was in the seven hundreds. <laughs> so, um, what I actually did when I was valuing the company is I just assumed that Nigeria was going to go to seven hundred something. Yeah, I saw you assumed the black market rates for. A I lot mean, of just yeah. you know, like I, I'm 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 a pretty free market person. I think that the 
free market's going to be able to set a better exchange rate than the government. <laughs> so, um, but it was a little bit weird because they were able to expatriate some money, like a couple hundred million dollars a year uh, from Nigeria at the old rate. But yeah, it turned out that they, they caved on that pretty quickly. So, <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think you, I mean, it's always hard to predict how any, you know, broader economic event is going to affect, um, you know, any particular country. Uh, but I think in this case, it's, you're pretty well protected by the valuation as well as just kind of the fundamental nature of the, their, their service to the African economies. I mean, I think like post 2014, you had a really bad time for, uh, for the African economy as a whole after the oil bust, right. Or just the commodities bust in general post 2014. And you saw, you saw very little, I mean, you go back to the numbers, there wasn't a, you, there wasn't a ton of impact to their business. Um, to telecoms in general in Africa, because it's, it's, it's still, I mean, it's even, even at the much lower GDP per capita of Africa, the telecom pricing is still a minority of that. And it's so essential um, that, you know, the, the, incre the increased desire for access to the internet just swamped any, like even, even large cyclical factors. One, one of the tough things about doing this podcast is it's an hour and you think you can get through a lot in an hour, but when you've got a business with two different segments and 14 countries and stuff, it's tough. So I, I want to be conscious of time, but I do. there are a few last questions I want to make sure I ask. Uh, sure. We talked about mobile money a lot, right? And my history with telecom com companies, I, I do know like there's M-Pesa has a famous case study. That's the Kenyan one that was like African telecom launching a mobile money. I, I know that the African companies have had success, but maybe I'm too biased by the domestic companies, but like the domestic telecom companies anything they launch is just absolutely terrible. And it tends to get run over by a you know small scrappy startup that invests one one thousandth of the resource because they're focused and they respond really quickly, they can do it. And so far, you know, these businesses have done great in Africa. But I guess the question is like, as the economy grows a little bit more and consumers get more access to data and like it becomes a little bit more entrepreneurial, what's the stop that my history of, hey, telecom companies get crushed whenever they try to do anything that's not telecom? What's to stop that from happening to mobile money? You know, either a Facebook or a Square or, you know, Jack Dorsey spends half his time in Africa now. What's to stop them, PayPal, from launching something that comes and really attacks this or them just bungling it in some way, shape or form or a startup taking it from them, you know, an African-based startup. That'd be great. I think I think the, the difference is in the West, um, anything the telecom companies did that was sort of outside of their core business, what they were basically starting from square one against, um, you know, well-funded competition. And they, there was really no synergies between kind of their core business and the, the other stuff that they were, that they would try to do, whether that's like Verizon going into the advertising business or the TV streaming business or whatever. I mean, yeah, they already have subscribers and maybe they can cross sell to them, but um, there was no, like, you know, there was, they had no advantage, I think in, in those. And so, yeah, they got crushed by other companies. I mean, I think here, what we've seen is, um, because the mobile payments business, I mean, really the mobile payments business worldwide pretty much started in Africa, like with, like with M-Pesa in 2007 and the, 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 their advantage was they were, um, you know, they were one of the only, you know, M-Pesa rollover minutes were one of the only like digital assets that they were, they were people's only connection to the digital world. And they were the only digital assets that people already had. 
And so, yeah. like you said, this case study, um, I mean, it's not even the case study just kind of describes what happened, but like, you know, they, they were able to turn those digital assets into a fundamental first mover advantage in terms of subscribers. And correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't even think it was them like intentionally doing it. I think it was yeah. consumers. Th this was just the only thing and people did it. And wisely, uh, it was Vodafone's group, I think that, that controlled it. But wisely, they said, hey, yeah. everybody's doing it. We might as well start supporting this. And it's turned into a, a massive business that's beneficial for everyone. Yeah. I mean, what people realized was, I mean, you know, when, when, when there's no bank accounts, um, you know, obviously currency is nice. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, something that kind of everyone can agree on the value on and, you know, it's, um, you know, everyone, everyone accepts it, blah, blah, blah. But what people realized pretty quickly was, um, you know, mobile phone minutes had all, all, all the same benefits, except you could transfer them digitally from, from, from phone to phone. And like you said, yeah, it wasn't, M-Pesa just noticed that this was already happening and then kind of built a system uh, around facilitating it, facil facilitating it further. Um, but I think what they've, what they've shown is they've, um, you know, I think, I think arguably, you know, one of the, one of the only, uh, advantages in technology that it really exists in technology is, is network effects, like network yeah. effects and, and first mover advantages, uh, you know, that, that result from that. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that, uh, Airtel money already has 30 million subscribers and, and like their, um, they have 30 million, sorry, 30 million users. Um, and they have this base of 140 million user, 140 million telecom subscribers that will most likely be using Airtel money um, at, at, at some point in the future. And I think that's just really hard for startups to go after now. I mean, I think, so the, the, the interesting counterpoint, or maybe it's the uh, exception that proves the rule is Nigeria. So in Nigeria, the the um, the banks basically lobbied. I mean, this is what this is the story that most people have taken away, is that the, the the financial institutions lobbied to kind of slow down the telecom companies from introducing mobile money for years, um, and so it wasn't until last year that uh, MTN and Airtel finally got approval to operate mobile money businesses in um, uh, in Nigeria, and by then you did have strong competition um, and you know, other nimble, uh, providers that were able to, um, you know, they were able to hit the ground running when that, when that got, uh, you know, when that got approved and it's been much harder in Nigeria because they don't have, yes, they already have subscribers, but everyone are, everyone knows what mobile money is. And they, they, there isn't already this like network effect of people having a couple hundred dollars on Airtel and, you know, wanting to use it. It's a great story because it shows the difficulty of it. And as you said, like, it's not like the telecom companies are guaranteed to win. What happens is, as you said, first mover advantage and they can take it. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Are traditional expert calls in the investment world becoming obsolete? According to Stream, they are. And you can access primary research easily and efficiently through their platform. With Stream, you'll have the right insights at your fingertips to make the best investment decisions. They offer a vast library of over 26,000 expert transcripts powered by AI search technology. Plus, they provide competitive rates on expert call services, and you can even have an experienced buy-side analyst conduct the calls for you. But that's not all. Stream also provides the ability to engage with experts one-on-one -on -one and get your calls transcribed free of charge, all for 40% less than you would pay for 20 calls in a traditional expert network model. 
So if you're looking to optimize your research process and increase ROI on investment research spend, Stream has the solution for you. Head over to their website at streamrg.com to learn more. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Last question and then maybe we'll wrap it up. If I just, you've got investment here, hopefully we get the mobile money IPO in the next couple months or next year or so. If we just played this forward three or five years from now, like one of the things I do worry about is this is an African telecom company that's traded in London and reports in USD. Yes, it'll be nice to get <laughs> dividends back. And yes, the cash flow should grow. And hopefully, but I do wonder, I do worry like, hey, do you just have a, a situation where no one cares? You know, just no one cares. There's no <laughs> catalyst. It, it doesn't seem like there's a natural acquirer for them. Like, yeah, we'll probably do fine because the dividends keep coming in and the cash flow keeps going up. But what if this just trades at four times EBITDA forever? Because just nobody cares. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of my thesis around why the opportunity exists in the in the first place is just kind of like no one cares because it's this weird like thing that trades in London, but it's in Africa, but it's in dollars, but it's in 14 countries. Like what's going on? Um, and so I, I think that's um, I think I think if my I, I tend to like to build portfolios of things where the valuation kind of implies no one cares right now. And if no one cares in the future, then you kind of do okay. But if someone ends up caring, then you can do really well. So I think that's, you know, a, a positive optionality that that this that it has at this valuation. And if it, if no, if it just trades at four times EBITDA forever, then you just get you just end up getting the free cash flow yields, uh, or you know, or the dividend yields paid out, and you end up being fine with like a probably still double digit return. No, that makes sense. Do you think the dividend's weird? It just strikes me you've got this fast-growing African uh, African telecom with the control shareholder. I mean, obviously they spit off tons of free cash flow, so they can pay the dividend. But it also strikes me, hey, should they be? I don't know. You, you, the history of cross-border telecom M and A is not great, but they've successfully done it. MTN successfully done it. Should they be trying to go roll up some more markets or like maybe? It's probably too early for 5G, but upgrade faster. It's just, it is weird to have a dividend paying, fast growing company like this, you know? And maybe it's just because I'm so scared of my own shadow when it comes to a controlled African company. But in a weird way, almost that dividend makes me like, hey, am I missing something? Like, are they trying to lure me in with the dividend? And then it's all going to turn out to be a giant fraud Ponzi scheme run by Sam Brakeman Freed? I mean, I think, I think, um, Maybe the way to think of it is just them upstreaming cash to the parent company. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. they're also the parent company is also growing in India, right? So they have, um, they have a, a, a probably multiple good uses for that for that cash flow. And like you know, if you have um, you know seven hundred million or something of, of of free cash flow or more um, in the business, paying you know using six hundred to kind of pay down debt and grow the business and maybe do tuck in acquisitions. Um, and then pay out 200 million to the, to the parent company doesn't seem like a very big, um, you know, it seems, seems, seems quite reasonable. Um, and I think it's just that it's just that it ends up being a substantial dividend yield because the valuation is so cheap, <laughs> but it's only like, it's only like a, a less than a third of free cash flow. So. Well, look, I think we've gone hour, maybe a little more. I, again, as I said at the start, I, I just, I love this idea. It is just, it, you said it, you said it at the start, Hey, this is a sum of the parts idea, but it's not the sum of the parts where you've got two publicly traded subs and you're buying it for a discount. It's a publicly traded part where, hey, I think they're going to, everything says, including management incentives, they're going to IPO Airtel money and we're going to have some value crystallization in the near future. And then hopefully we get that cash back or something. But I, I just love this idea. But the, the African telecom controlled company, it, it just screams at you, but it's so obvious. It's so cheap. It's uh, 
it's really interesting. Anyway, Evan, really appreciate you coming on. I'll, I'll include a link to this is your third appearance. I'll include a link to your Airtel write up for people who want to do a little more. Uh, but Evan, really looking forward to the next one. What we really need is we need Twitter to get bought out again so we can just be DMing each other <laughs> five times a day. And that was a lot of fun. I was going to say our, our, the, I think the last one I came on and did, um, the, the YouTube uh, title was Evan Tyndall thinks that the Elon Musk will uh, close the Twitter deal <laughs> or something like that. I think that's what you titled the video. And so if I, if, I just hope that I, I, I wish you luck that all of your, your video titles can be as prescient as, uh, as, as that one. Do you have any regrets of the Twitter process? Just because I think you and I, we were very bullish in public, but in private, I think you and I were even more bullish. Like there's no way this man can get out. Do you regret not, you know, so I would always say, Kelly said you should sell your kidney and put all of your money plus your kidneys money plus sell your dog and put it in Twitter. Do you regret not selling your kidneys to invest in Twitter? I mean, we had over a 20% position in it. So like, I mean, yes, I do. I do think it was the great, the, 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 the best risk reward that we will ever see in the, definitely in the arbitrage world, hundred percent chance. I, I would be shocked if there's a, a better risk reward. Do you um, regret not doing more of it with options? And obviously, yes, we regret yeah, not to have that, hundred, but yeah, that I do because, um, it, I mean, I remember some of the things you sent me, like, and, and they were just, I'd like, I just agreed that they were looked so obvious, but like, I still couldn't get my mind around having like a higher allocation to the, to the, to the, to the, to the story. Um, I, but so I, I did a little bit. Yeah. I did a little bit with options, but I, I really regret because I, I think you and I both said, Hey, the downside is a lot higher than the market thinks here, but mm. this is. 99.9% going to close unless like you get a gov literal government intervention or something, which there was Cepheus worry for a while. But when you think the downside's higher and the likelihood to close is lower, that just screams play it with options. And honestly, I, I was just too scared. I don't do crazy amounts with options. I was just too scared. And I was also a little bit worried. What if I do the Novembers and it closes in December? What if I do January and he appeals and goes to Supreme Court and closes in March? I was worried about timing, but I said 2020, but that's my yeah, one and, regret with it. And the problem the problem with the timing situation is there would be nothing more annoying and more embarrassing to be right on your analysis that he was not going to buy that you're sorry to be correct in your analysis that he was going to lose in court and then somehow be wrong on the timing and have that like impair the profits of, of like, that would have been so frustrating for me. I think in a way it was almost like a regret minimization thing from that standpoint where I, I just couldn't have mentally taken it if, if we were right on everything but the timing and that screwed us over. <laughs> I do hear you, but it, again, it is the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> but when I think about it rationally, that that was kind of where you wanted to come. Anyway, it was fun reminiscing on Twitter. Those were some, those were the glory, truly the glory days. I, I, I still owe you a drink, I think at some point. Yeah. Next time you're in New York, I would love to do it. That'd be great. Once you come back from this scenic Massachusetts. There you uh, go. There you go. Well, Evan, I appreciate you coming on and we will chat soon, buddy. All right. Thanks, Andrew. A quick disclaimer, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Guests or the hosts may have positions in any of the stocks mentioned during this podcast. Please do your own work and consult a financial advisor. Thanks.